morning. Let's give another hand to this amazing group of people that just walked off the stage. It's a great uh, way to celebrate Christmas uh, in this service this morning. Grateful to have them here with us. I'll try not to be a, uh, you know, whatever the term is, you know, a knockoff of that uh, great effort. We are in a series for the last couple weeks in the book of Matthew, first couple chapters, naturally looking at the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, in a series called Brought to Light. And the big idea, I suppose, of this series is, I mentioned this last week, is a is a challenge for us to slow down in Matthew's version anyway, the opening of his gospel and in the opening of the New Testament, to try to see what we can learn from a very, very, sometimes too familiar um, account of the birth of Jesus. So that's where we are. We're in Matthew chapter 2 today. If you have a copy of the Bible, open it up, Matthew chapter 2, or use the one in front of you, turn it on if you have a, on your a phone, and follow along as I read Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12. My title above my chapter in my copy says, The Magi Visit the Messiah, Matthew 2. Bible says these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the, uh, the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they retur- returned to their country by another route. The title of this message uh, is The Wisdom of the World and the Wisdom of God. And I would uh, suggest to you today, as we look at this passage, that the wisdom of the world uh, is very different from the wisdom of God. You know, they're, they're not like each other um, at all, actually. And sometimes they are at odds. And I think this passage is here. The wise men, right, following, following, uh, lurk searching for Jesus to have us ask a question about wisdom, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. You know, it takes time and steady commitment to truly see Jesus for who he is. And that's what we want to talk about, right? These, this group of people went a long way to see him, right? They, worked, they went a long journey to see him. 
And I would say to you, as we look at the contemporary audience, our, our day in life, uh, as, here, as Christians, many of us, it takes time, it takes steady commitment to truly see Jesus and to become what I would call, what you, we would call a, a true follower of Jesus. You cannot dip in and dip out, right, of your faith um, and expect to experience the kind of life change that we long for and that the Bible talks about. It's not just about, you know, new words to new songs, you know, learning or to learning Bible verses. It's about a new way of seeing. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's about a new way of seeing yourself and of seeing the world, um, which is born out of a, a, a new way of seeing God. That's what we want to talk about in the few minutes that I have. Now, this passage, the... Um, the Magi, I don't know, maybe it's the most well-known of the, of the Christmas accounts, so to speak, and it's been popularized, of course, um, you know, in popular culture, on television, it's in, you know, malls, it's many of us have a manger scene in our homes, and the wise men are a part of it, and you can hardly get away from it, and, um, but I would say to you, as I've said before, as we these passages, what we see in the scripture and what we've come to bring to the scripture sometimes are different. In fact, this story, this account, if you were one of the first readers, if we could transport ourselves back to the early Christians, many of them Jewish or even people reading this text, you would find the Magi, right, these folks from the east who came to visit Jesus, the Christ child, you would find it strange that they were in the story of, you know, the... Um, the, the birth of Jesus or the early accounts of Jesus. Not only strange, you might even find it offensive because the Magi, which see, that, that washes over us. We'd never think of that, perhaps. But the Magi, every time that they're used, that term, the Magi, um, which is used in the Old Testament or in the New Testament or in other literature of the, sea, of the period, the first century, every time it's used, it's negative or pejorative, especially if you were Jewish, right? I mean, if I'm Jewish or I'm a Jewish Christian, which is what Matthew's writing to largely, and I'm learning about the birth of the Messiah and he's telling me this story after the fact, to have the first people that come to see the Christ child and make the effort, these people who are not from Jerusalem, not from Israel. Listen, they're not even Jewish. Their Bible, they didn't have, the Old Testament was not their Bible. And they had no business really being the first people showing up here. You wouldn't have expected them there. And all the more if you were Jewish because of their profession, the word magi, many of you would guess this, it's the same word where we get the word magic from. Now, they weren't magicians, but what they were in this culture, different than our own, astrology, the study of the stars, right? They're following a star. And astronomy, we'd see that more as a legitimate science, astrology, more of a pseudoscience. In this early culture, they were one in the same. Okay? So even though, so for the Jewish person or even the Jewish Christian to say, wow, here's the story of the birth of the Messiah coming into the world, and here it is, build up, and the first people there are not even Jewish, and their astrologers from Babylon would be very strange, number one. Okay? Matthew's making a point. Now, but the other thing that's certainly true about them, if you really think hard about this story, is um, they're serious people, okay? This journey from the east, and by the east it means Babylon, if you do your homework, was between 900 and 1,000 miles, 
largely by foot or by, you know, horseback. That would be like walking or, or riding a horse from Minneapolis to Rochester, okay? That's the journey that they made. And not, they made this very long journey from Babylon to Bethlehem, but yet the people for whom a generations have been waiting for the promise of the Messiah, the Jewish people themselves living all around Jerusalem and Judea, none of them, at least according to Matthew's version, even bothered to walk six miles to see the Christ child. And Matthew opens his gospel, I think, writing to the church, but they're largely Jewish believers, basically trying to open his, his gospel to say, why is that so, right? How is it possible? What's the reason that the final, after, after a thousand years of prophecy of the coming Messiah, he's finally here, why is it that the people from another country, another culture, another religion, they make the long journey and find the Christ child in all the people who've been going to Sunday school and church their whole life don't even bother to make the trip. How did they miss this? Okay. And I think there's a message here for us. My first point to see Jesus is what we're talking about here today. It's a, it's a way of talking about wisdom. You need to move past your prejudice and your presumptions, right? You need to move past your prejudice and your presumptions. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, the Magi, who are strange people because of what they do for a living, but also strange because they're not Jewish, okay? Now, they're here, I think, if Matthew's writing his gospel, they're partly here as a nod, because he's a good writer, to where this Gospel is going to end. Some of us know this. Where Matthew is leading up, the big, you know, climax, the big, you know, comes all to a conclusion in Matthew 28 when Jesus, the risen Jesus, gets on a mountain and he says, listen to his disciples. I got some amazing news for you. The good word of God, the kingdom of God is not just for Jewish people. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I want to create an organization called the church that is open to all kinds of people, all skin color, all background, all faith background, to everybody. So clearly, and Matthew's being clever here. I mean, it really happened, but he's saying, listen, I want to begin at the, I want to, I want to have the end in mind here. I want to have a nod to where this is all going. And so the first people, ironically, that find the Christ child are the Magi, people who would not normally even be welcomed into the Jewish faith. But beyond that, I think there's another purpose here. To see Jesus, you need to move past your prejudice and your presumption. And that is it's a rebuke to the worldliness and the spiritual blindness of the people of God. Okay, Now see, maybe we wouldn't read the, the story that way. But if you think about it, right? Try to transport yourself back to the first century when all the church were converted Jews. And they're finally telling the story that we've been waiting a thousand years for, the birth of the Messiah. And the first people, that sh the only people that show up in Matthew's version are people that weren't ever invited in the first place, okay? It's a rebuke to the worldliness and the spiritual blindness of the people of God. I would say this to you. How does it apply to us? The... I would say one of the greatest sins in all of the Bible and a sin that's at the heart of the Old Testament people of God's failure 
And remember, the Old Testament people of God are the context for the new people of the Testament of God. The sin that's at the heart of the Old Testament people of God's failure to recognize God's coming was the sin of presumption, right? It's the sin of presumption. What is presumption when it comes to faith? Presumption is this. It's you and I thinking, whether you're a Christian in this room or not, or anybody, thinking that everything is okay with you and God when in reality, everything is not okay, okay? That's what presumption is. In much of the Old Testament, if you look at the people of just look at the last 30-year Old Testament, all these prophets, you know, Isaiah and, and, and Ezekiel and, 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 and Micah and Jeremiah, and all these prophets are coming, and it goes on for years. God is so merciful. I mean, decades it goes on. He says, listen, one prophet after the another, wake up, snap out of it. You're disobedient, you're, dis- you're unfaithful, they're full of idolatry and sin and greed and extortion, and one after the other says, listen, wake up, turn around, and they said one time after another, listen, we've got nothing to worry about. God made a promise. He built this temple. He said he's going to always be connected to this temple. And we don't have to worry about it. We are okay, right? And finally, the temple was destroyed, burned to the ground. And the people of God, every last one of them, were carted off and went somewhere else. And there was no more king. And no more monarchy, right? It's the sin of presumption. You could look at the great churches, those of you who care about this, you know, all over the place, England, America, just, you know, the Reformation forward, but it could go all the way back. Look at some of the great churches, right? And, and, and churches that were once great, doing an amazing job, growing and making a difference. And today or decades ago, those churches declined or closed. The reason, below all the reasons, is presumption thinking that everything is okay when everything is not okay. And I would say the same is true for our lives. There are people in this room, and sadly people who aren't in this room, who one time in their life, their faith was strong. Their faith was, was a hot burning coal, and you knew it, and I knew it. Maybe it's you, maybe it's me. And you say, there was a time in my life when my faith was so strong and central, and I faced life with, such, um, with confidence and courage, and eventually it grew warm, and it grew cool, and it grew cold. And I would say to you, the same thing is at work there. It's the sin of presumption. Later, Matthew chapter 8, this great story but parallels the Magi story, where a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier comes to Jesus when he's in Capernaum and asks him for help because his servant is sick. Now, even the fact that a Roman soldier, right? They were the ones that were the, the occupiers of the Jewish people. They didn't like Rome. They had, no, they had no business in the temple. They had no business in the worship of Israel. But the Roman soldier saw something that the people of God didn't see. And he looked at Jesus. He said, Jesus, I've heard about you. And if you would be willing to help my servant, that would be amazing. And Jesus turns his face to him and he begins to talk and he interrupts Jesus. Listen, don't even bother coming to my house. Don't even, don't even waste your time because I'm a man under authority. I know what authority is. All you need to do is speak the word and my servant will be healed. Roman soldier, this is what Jesus says. When Jesus heard this, Matthew eight ten, he was amazed I don't know if there's too many places in the New Testament where it says Jesus was amazed, right? He was amazed and he said to those following him, which are the disciples, that's you and me, truly I tell you, 
Now, again, we, we miss the meaning of this. This is a kick in the stomach, in a manner of speaking. Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel, that is, the people of God, with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east, that's where the Magi came from, and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the important people in the Old Testament, in the kingdom of God. But the subjects of the kingdom. Oh, that's me. I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian, right? I'm a, I'm a Jew. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay? Christmas time is especially a time, I think, for Christians. My, my point here to you guys today. To be reminded of just how amazing a saving faith relationship with God actually is. And if you have a saving relationship with God today, let me tell you something. It's not founded on your good looks. <laughs> it's not founded on your good works. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything about you whatsoever. It's all about God's grace. And as soon as you forget that, it's the beginning um, of the end for you and for me. To see Jesus, that's what wisdom is, you need to move past your prejudice, right, and your presumption. Second thing, to see Jesus, you'll need to drop your pursuit of worldly values or the world's values. You say, that's what this passage says? I think it does. Remember, Matthew's writing with a purpose. This is not just telling the Christmas story for fun. You need to drop your pursuit of the world's values. Now, at the heart of this message, or this, this passage, I should say, there's a contrast, right? I mean, this is, these guys are they're writing with, 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 with economy and purpose. And the, and the contrast here, okay, is between two kings, right? Obviously, Herod, who's a very, very well-known king in this day, one of the most well-known personalities in the ancient world is Herod the Great, and Jesus. And they're not only two kinds of kings, they're two different ways of seeing the world. Now, Herod, some of you may know, was an illegitimate king in some ways. In other words, the Jewish people, or I'm sorry, the Roman government who ran, who, ran, uh, who had jurisdiction in Palestine at this time, they appointed Herod king over the Jewish people. They called him the king of the Jews because he was part of the, you know, the, the community of, of governors. But Herod had a little bit of Jewish blood in him. So they said, listen, these Jewish people, you know, they're, they're very particular and they're, very, they're, 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 they're difficult at times. We want to give them someone they might like. So they chose Herod, so history tells us, because Herod had a little bit of Jewish blood in him and they called him king of the Jews. So, uh, good as far as it goes. But the Jewish people, right, they didn't accept Herod as a legitimate king. They, didn't, they knew who Herod really was. He was not a Jew in their eyes. And because of that tension, because of that distrust, well, Herod, Herod's way of, of governing was the way of ambition and of power and of strategy, whatever it takes to get ahead, that's what Herod would do. And he would use deceit, as he does in this passage with the Magi, and he even uses violence. We'll see that next Sunday, right? That's who Herod was. It's a study of two different kings and two different ways of seeing and experiencing the world. But 
What's my point? It wasn't just Herod. Verse 3. When King Herod heard this, heard what? That these people from Babylon, from way out in the middle of nowhere who weren't Jews, they made this 900-mile trek to go to little old Bethlehem because to, to anoint or to acknowledge a new king. He was disturbed, that makes sense, and all Jerusalem with him. Wait a minute. I understand why Herod's going to be upset because Herod might lose his job if there's another king. But all of Jerusalem? You mean all of the people who had spent hundreds of years, thousands of years waiting for the promise of the Messiah and he's finally here? Why would they be upset? In fact, the irony that there's so much irony in this passage, when Herod wants to understand more about what's going on, he's, not a, very, he, he's a Jew in, in, in name only, he calls the seminary leaders over, the chief priests, listen, tell me more about the birth of the Messiah. They know where it is, right? They pull out the book of Micah and they say, listen, in Bethlehem of Judea. So the, all of Jerusalem, the religious leaders, the insiders, the churchgoers, those who raised in the church, so to speak, they knew exactly what was going on. They even knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But they didn't make the six-mile journey to go see him. Why is that, right? Why is that? They didn't like Herod. We know that from history. But they lived like Herod. And they held Herod's values, that's why, okay? And Jesus Christ coming into the world was going to upset the status quo. And even though they understood, they knew the prophecy that a baby would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 2, they didn't show up. You know, the Bible talks about spiritual blindness. But when the Bible talks about spiritual blindness, it doesn't mean, you know, Deep truths versus shallow truths. Well, you're spiritually blind because you see just basic stuff and I'm spiritually sophisticated. I see the deeper stuff. That's not what spiritual blindness means when you see it in the Bible. Spiritual blindness means that you're blinded, I'm blinded by what God is doing, whether it's in the world at large, like the birth of the Messiah, or what God's doing in your own life. You're blind, you cannot see it, because your own purposes, your own plans, your own agenda are in the way. See? Herod was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him, because Jesus was coming into the world. Not because they loved Herod, but because they lived like Herod, and they held Herod's, Herod's values. I read this article in the paper, convenient for me to use this as an illustration, about Michael Cohen. You know who Michael Cohen is? Anybody read the paper? Okay. The lawyer who's uh, got himself in some trouble. But he was, did an, article, an interview with George Stephanopoulos and ABC. And I was just reading this in the paper. I didn't see the interview. He says, Michael Cohen said this, quote, I followed a bad path. Those of you who don't know, a lawyer of the president who's got arrested and uh, is in a lot of trouble and going to jail. I followed a bad path. Stephanopoulos asked him what the Cohen of today would say to the Cohen of a few years ago. Okay? This is an illustration. Cohen's answer is, what would he say to himself of a few years ago? What were you thinking? You knew better. You know better. 
In front of the judge on Wednesday, Cohen said, quote, I was weak for not having the strength to question and refuse demands. He wondered aloud what happened to his, quote, inner voice, which he said, should have warned me. One of his comments to Stephanopoulos perhaps explains that, quote, there was a lot of fun going on in the Trump organization, he said. Sleek skyscrapers, ornate casinos, private jets, the Miss Universe pageant. It glittered, distracted, and lulled. In retrospect, it was its own kind of incarceration because it removed me from more important things, my family, my conscience, the respect I owed my country, okay? Now, I'm not here to make a political point. It's a convenient story that I read. It's a safe story. It's a public story that I can share with you about the danger of being blinded about the important things because of other things that have gotten in the way. I could tell many more of those stories today. I know a lot of people. I don't have the, um, it would be inappropriate I don't have the permission, but I could tell many other stories of people that I know, including people in this church, who are in making the same kind of mistake with their life right now today. Living as Christians, but pursuing the world's values in the way that they do their job, in the way that they run their home, in the way that they manage their money, in the way that they use their time, okay? To see Jesus, you'll need to drop your pursuit of the world's values. You know, I can have it all, Pastor. I can do both. No one else has done it very well, but I can do both. I can pursue the world's values and I can be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. You think you can, but you can't, okay? You can't. What were you thinking? You knew better. You know better. This is also a contrast of two kings, as I said. And, and, and again, these writers are so smart, right? We miss this. We gotta wake up. We gotta take off our sentimental glasses when we read the Bible. It's King Herod, the great Herod the Great, okay? I can't even think of someone whose who's, who's personality is as big in our day, all right? There are many Herods and many Herods in the Bible, Right? There are many. Herod, Archelaus, there's many. There's three or four in the Bible. But this is Herod the Great. Herod the Great who built much of the ancient world, who built the great temple. That's a whole other story. He was a man of tremendous consequence. Okay? He was the king of kings when it comes to how the world is run. That's how the chapter opens. It closes. Think about it. The king at the end of this chapter is a Little under two-year-old boy or boy. I should say a boy or a girl. He's a boy. <laughs> okay. Let's get that clear. Jesus is a boy. Okay. Well, what's the point? Matthew didn't have to tell this story this way. Mark doesn't even open with the Christmas story. The Gospel of Mark opens with Jesus and his disciples. In other words, he's telling it for a purpose. Because he's not only t Jesus is not only the way to God. I said this to you last week. Jesus, slow down, listen, is the way of God. Right? Not a powerful, ambitious, hungry, do-whatever-it-takes leader, right? It's the way our world runs. But the vulnerability of a child. But see, God hasn't called us to worship a child, okay? I don't want to ruin your Christmas, but we don't worship the baby Jesus. 
But what is, what is he trying to say? It's a, it's, a great, it's a value system. Matthew chapter 18. Listen to these verses. Jesus will say this to his disciples later. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is really the point of the Magi. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change, okay, this is the real challenge of the Christian life. Unless you change and become like little children, I'm talking about childishness, right? Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? There's two kings, two ways of seeing the world, two ways of relating to the world. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, okay, it's humility. It's the lack of presumption is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes such child in my name welcomes me, right? You want to know why Jesus isn't making a difference in your life? You want to know why your life has not been revolutionized or my life has not been revolutionized? Because you haven't really seen Jesus. You haven't really accepted him into the center of your life. Why is that? Well, because your prejudice, your presumption, and your pursuit of the world's values have blinded you have blinded me from the real thing, right? Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him when the Magi came to see the baby Jesus. I think it was Thomas Merton, you know, the monk, great Thomas Merton, the writer, who said this. Many people spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to realize when they get to the top their ladder has been leaning against the wrong wall okay isn't that great is that true of you is that true of me right to see Jesus you need to move past your prejudice and your presumption you need to drop your pursuit of the world's values and my last point When you see Jesus, you'll be moved to give him your very best, okay? Now, I I, I could come up with some story of why these wise men traveled 900 miles to see Jesus. One of the things that we know is true, the Jewish people were exiled in Babylon for 70 years in the end of your Old Testament, and most of them did not move back when... They were called back to come to, to, to Israel's um, humble re- reunion under Nehemiah and Ezra. And so God spread his word. There was an expectation that went far beyond Jerusalem that a king would be born in Judah. But did they know? Think about this. I could, I could preach to you and make it sound like a good sermon, but I, what, did, did they know when they came and bowed down and worshiped? Didn't say they just gave him a nice gift and said, you know, welcome to you know, uh, congratulations on your, on your new kingship. No, they bowed down and worshiped him. Now, did they know that he was God the Son and the Son of God? I don't think so. I doubt it. Even the apostles didn't know that. The 12 apostles, until Jesus rose from the dead, they, had, they, they were confused. They did not know that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, God the Son, okay? 
But here's what I think Matthew's trying to tell us. Well, I don't know. This is an unanswered question. What motivated their amazing journey? But here's what I know. They were wise men, right? Wise men. This was a profession in their day. In other words, their fundamental pursuit was wisdom, right? They were, that's what they were. They, they were professional, wise. Their, their fundamental pursuit was wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability, right? Read the book of Proverbs. To know how to live life, to how to, how to apply knowledge and understanding, to how to put their things in the right places in life. That's what wisdom is. That was their pursuit. And somehow, in, some, in a way that doesn't make sense to me, when they finally saw Jesus, they said, this is it, right? This is wisdom. And what I'm saying to you is this. I think this is true of every person in this room and every person not in this room. And I can't, there's not a lot of things for which that is true. I think all of us are looking for wisdom. All of us are looking for how to better live our lives, how to better make decisions, how to better apply what we know, how to be a person of value and a person that actually um, does some good in the world. I think that's true of every person in this room. And what I'm saying to you is Jesus Christ, as Paul will say this in Colossians, he is the full expression of the knowledge and wisdom. It's all found in him, okay? All the wisdom that you need to manage your life, to manage your relationships, to find meaning in life, to find value in the days that we all have been given, the wisdom that you long for, that I long for, that I spend my money doing this, and I spend my time doing that, and these foolish things, right? Looking for ultimate answers in the things of this world. What this passage tells us, it's found in Jesus Christ, but it's not checking a box, right? It's not celebrating Christmas. You can't dip in and dip out, right? You have to deal with your own spiritual blindness, which is, starts with your presumption and mine, and it goes into the value system of the world. We, the, the world's value system isn't found in, in, you know, in the academy or in the mall. It's, it's, the, it's the water we're all swimming in. It's the air we're all breathing, Right? You have to know that and you have to respond to it. Otherwise, you'll march lockstep with everyone else while you're singing the hymns all the way to a life of no meaning and no power, okay? When you see Jesus, you'll be moved to give him your very best. I'm gonna invite this great group out. We're gonna sing one more song. But let me just say this. When you see Jesus, you'll be moved to give him your very best. That's what these, these, these wise people did. I, I was in Wegmans um, a couple days ago, which I go to often. Uh, uh, probably see some of you there today. And this was just uh, three or four days ago, and I saw a man. He might be sitting in here today. And I saw him. I said, hey, Doc. And he looked up. That was a real serious look on his face. He said, Pastor, it's great to see you. I was just thinking about you. You know, I mean, who knows if that's true, but, you know. That's what you say to your pastor when you see him in Wegmans, I guess. And he said, I was just thinking about you. And he said, I was thinking about something you said last week. And I said, what is it? And I'm thinking, because you said something that really stuck with me. And I'm thinking, oh, it's some little nugget about Joseph and, you know, you know something I, little earth, unearthed, you know, some little great little thought I got out of a book somewhere. And he said, you know, I've been in the church my whole life. And he said, I grew up in this church. He mentioned the kind of church he was in. 
you know, compliment to his family, and he said, I've known Jesus as my Savior for as long as I can remember. And I said, that's great. He said, but you said something last week. You said, Jesus just, he's not just our Savior. He's supposed to be our Lord. In other words, he's supposed to be your king. And he said, I'm not sure he's always been my king. Okay? That's what this passage tells us, right? When you see Jesus, if you, if you get past your presumption, if you get past your, you know, pursuit of the world's values, you, 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 unless you deal with those things, you're not going to see him. But if you do, you'll be moved to give him your very best, right? Your very best. Do you know him? And what's it going to take for you to see him for who he is, to bow down and to give him your very best? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments. Thank you for um, my friends and my family and my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. And Lord, we just come to you hungering, Lord, to experience more of the wisdom that's given to us in the person of Jesus. Help us to see Jesus more today for who he is. And Lord, whatever's standing in our way, Lord, these things, invisible things of the heart, whether it's our own pride and presumption or our own, you know, commitment to march in the world's value system, help us to let those go and to take the journey wherever it leads to follow Jesus and to see him for who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.